welcome to Kingdom Roots, where we talk about how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now with Scott McKnight. And today on our show, we have Lynn Kohick with us. We're very excited and she is coming to Northern Seminary. Um, in a few months, and we're very excited to have her join our community. And Scott is going to give her a little bit of an introduction, and then we'll dive into our conversation with her. Okay, well, Lynn, we're really glad that you're with us, and uh, we welcome you to the Kingdom Roots podcast. Uh, Lynn uh, is a friend of mine. I've known her as a New Testament colleague for maybe 15 years. A long time. I think when we were children. Don't start giving dates right now, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, and I've I have followed her work. I, I just think that her book on uh, women in the early churches um, is a fantastic book. It's a con it's a mm -hmm. contribution to scholarship and uh, has to be read by all serious New Testament students. And uh, Lynn and I have the distinct privilege of replacing F.F. Bruce's commentaries. I think Bruce wrote Colossians uh, and Ephesians in one volume and probably did it in two months. And it took Lynn and I a long time <laughs> to complete the work. Although we can say we wrote more words than, than Professor Bruce did. But Lynn, we want to welcome you to the Kingdom Roots podcast and especially to the North uh, Northern Seminary community. Oh, thank you. Thank you both, uh, Scott and Laura. I'm excited to both talk with you now and to be joining uh, the uh, Northern team in a couple of months starting in January. Yeah. What are you excited about, about coming to Northern, Lynn? Well, you mentioned uh, my earlier work on women in the ancient world, including in the early church and one of the opportunities I have is to start an MA uh, program in women's studies. And so I'm very excited to, uh, to launch that. And we'll be working on that uh, in the next couple of months. And the number of students who've said things to me, and I'm sure to Laura, because she's closer, her ear is closer to the ground than I, mine is. Um, mm -hmm. Pretty exciting. The students are really excited to have you on campus. But um, yeah. Lynn, writing a commentary uh, looks like it's such an easy thing to do. And uh, a lot of young professors say, oh, I'd love to write a commentary on Matthew. I was that professor. <laughs> and I worked on it for three years. I wrote two chapters and I wrote to Gordon Fee. And I said, Gordon, will you let me out of this contract? I will never finish this commentary. <laughs> Because um, writing a commentary is a grind. It's daily work where it's not like you're writing a novel where some story starts to unfold and you, you just, you know what's coming next. And it's not like writing even an academic monograph where you do know what's coming next. It's just every, in a sense, every word starts over again. You gotta consider how this word is used. and. I, I have to say, I am pretty amazed at what you accomplished in your Ephesians commentary as an administrator. I know how much work it was for me 
uh, who, uh, and I'm a person who is a, is a moron when it comes to administration, or at least uh, someone who does everything I can to avoid it. So here you are uh, as an administrator grinding away. And I would just like to see, hear you talk about how you wrote this thing. Yeah, well, um, I, and I hope it'll be true at Northern, but I'm not sure. Uh, but when I did administrative work, both at Wheaton College and at Denver, I had really good colleagues that didn't bother me, Scott. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was just a softball and I had to swing at it. Um, no, I think the, um, the writing the commentary, as you say, that it is a grind. There is the, uh, but there, there's also uh, a uh, consistency or um, like I, I, I worked on a verse or two a day um, for a long time. And I just said to myself every morning getting, I'm more of a morning person than a night owl. And so before work, uh, whether it was an hour, hour and a half, I would do that one verse, doing the kinds of things, the syntactical kinds of things, the word studies that you're talking about. But then on weekends, um, I would spend uh, several hours, both uh, on, on weekends, trying to uh, carve out a, a larger chunk of time uh, to be able to actually get through a passage. And the last year when I was I had already done the draft and now I was going back through and making uh, changes, responding to the editor and that sort of thing. I charted out how much time I would need to spend each week and I think it averaged five hours on Saturday and five hours on Sunday for like seven months straight, mm -hmm. plus uh, one to two hours in the morning uh, before work in order to keep my pace. So yeah, it was it was a grind. I have to say, in all of that, there were only a few times, praise the Lord, where I really thought, I want to throw Ephesians out the window, because it's such a <laughs> lovely book. It really, it, it was wonderful to be steeped in it, even though uh, it, it, was, it took a lot of time. <laughs> well, you know, um, a letter of Paul complicates life, because you have the big ugly uncle looking at you every time at his Romans. And it seems like everything revolves around Romans. Uh, you know, you can kind of deal with 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but Romans has all that theology that uh, is at work also in some ways in Ephesians, not so much in Colossians. So I had, I had the easier, easier task on that. So uh, I'm wondering, uh, theologically, pastorally, ecclesiologically, personally, what were some of the uh, growth points for you, learning points, exciting things that uh, I, I know uh, we've talked before about your Philippians and how enjoyable that was as a, as a piece of work. What are some of the highlights there for Ephesians for you? I think with Ephesians, it allowed, uh, I really enjoyed getting into Paul's Trinitarian theology. Because uh, he, he uses Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all over the place. And it's just there. And at least I was trained to really avoid, when looking at uh, Paul's work as, from an historical perspective, to avoid thinking theologically. And I would say Wes Hill's book on Paul and the Trinity was yeah. such a big help for me. And, and then I just kind of embraced, if this is what Paul is saying, he's doing this. 
um, he's using mm -hmm. this language. I'm not imposing it, but what can I understand from it? I would say that uh, was a lot of fun to explore. You know, I, I recently uh, read Matthew Bates, uh, The Birth of the Trinity. Well, first Wesley Hill, Matthew Bates, and then Madison Pierce as a new uh, academic monograph on the book of Hebrews. And I, I believe that these three scholars, they're not alone, uh, are making a significant contribution that is shifting, it should shift scholarship away. I, I grew up with what you, you did, Len, is that Trinitarian thought is verboten. Uh, you're, not, you're supposed to stay out of that stuff, but just describe what the New Testament says. And, and what uh, Wesley Hill actually shows is that Jimmy Dunn, uh, in his famous book, Christology in the Making, which was written while I, just before I went to study with Jimmy Dunn, and then Larry Hurtado in Lord Jesus Christ, and also Richard Bauckham, they were all persuaded that we can't talk about New Testament view of God unless we keep it restricted to Jewish monotheism. And these three scholars, Wes Hill, and Matthew Bates and Madison Pierce are saying, now, wait a minute, you've ruled off the map what might be on the map. And if you don't see it on the map because you're not looking for it, uh, you won't be able to factor it in. So I'm really glad that you, you brought up Trinitarian thinking um, because I, I, I agree. I think that there's, it's earlier. I mean, it's not Nicene. It's not Chalcedonian, but it is, you know, there's a relationality between Father, Son, and Spirit. You got them all three talking in the book of Hebrews. So go ahead. You, you. No, no. So that, that, was, that was something that I, I had not uh, previously really dealt with and delved into, but that, that was fun. And then um, I would say I also really enjoyed exploring the historical backdrop of the um, uh, household codes. Um, of course, I've done a lot on women in the ancient world, but uh, Ephesians also, I mean, you have to deal with the institution of slavery. And of course you do that in, in your commentary on Philemon. Um, and yeah, so there's, and there's so much rich hermeneutical uh, uh, works out there that are asking us to think in terms of interpretation, not just historically, which is important, but then also how did this book live in the Christian community, especially in the United States in recent centuries. So that, that also was challenging in a, in a good way. I hope it's profitable for readers. You know, I've, I've seen a, a trend in some New Testament scholarship that Paul just caved in in Ephesians and gave in to the Aristotelian social codes and lost uh, steam, you know, sort of like a scholar at the end of a career no longer has any good ideas and they just keep pumping out the same idea. Um, I, I want, did you, did you say much about that? When I, when I did Colossians, I would look at what they were saying. I think, nah, this isn't the same as Aristotle. No, I, I, I do mention uh, Aristotle because I think the categories uh, are are um, are his, 
but they they've morphed over the 500 years till they come to Paul. But nevertheless, Paul's audience would also have an expectation. I mean, that's just how their how, what their framework was, and uh, and and so they're going to think in these categories. And Paul believes the gospel can address anything in your life. And so if this is how your culture is shaping things, well, I can bring the gospel into that conversation. And I think that's, mm. that's what he tries to do. But then he, he challenges the, uh, the underlying premise of those hierarchical categories. And that that's where you hear the gospel speaking. So yeah, I don't think he runs out of steam. I think it is uh, subversive. Um, it's, yeah. it's subversive even uh, to the point that it's read aloud. So yeah. the wives are hearing this letter uh, with, their, with their husbands and Paul's command for husbands to love their wives. And no one else is talking about the kind of love that husbands uh, should have for their wives, the self-giving love that, that Christ modeled. No one is talking about that. Yeah. And Paul doesn't say it privately in a men's retreat. Hey, guys, you know, I really think it'd be helpful, you know, to love your wives this way. He, it's public. Yeah. <laughs> and the same with the, uh, with the slaves. Um, they hear uh, Paul say that God shows no favoritism. And uh, that's so it's public. It's transparent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that's powerful. You know, um, it, Northern has an emphasis in New Testament studies because of Bill Shield on the performance, uh, the performance of the letter. And when I did Colossians, Lynn, the words that stuck out on, for the slaves for me is treat them uh, uh, equally and justly or rightly. Those are strong terms, that word equally. And I, and I think, I bet those slaves were clapping when they heard the note, oh <laughs> boy, we people are gonna have to live up to this one. This is a strong one. And, Lynn, okay, yeah. um, this is a slider. You know, I know you okay. like baseball, so I can I can bring this up. Um, <laughs> you were the first woman to write a commentary in the NIC New Testament series. The series has been going on for 70 years, I think. I think the earliest ones are right there about 1950. Do you, do you think that there were things that you saw uh, that maybe other people haven't seen or aren't seeing or, you know, anything like that? Uh, yeah, I, I would say so. I think um, the, you know, the New Testament studies, um, a uh, lot, lot of my peers and uh, even some younger scholars did the um, semester in Germany or, you know, became very profession, uh, proficient in German, for example. And uh, my, my uh, path just didn't include that. And there weren't, there were fewer women that were doing studies and my husband had a full-time job. He wasn't going to be able to pick up and go to Germany. And, and there is a um, aspect of, um, of, I don't know, it, it can be, I have felt at times it's kind of a defining club. Um, and I, I, I just don't draw on German scholarship of the 
early 1900s, I think in a way that I've seen a lot of other commentaries draw on. And, um, and instead what I tried to do in this commentary was pull as many uh, female commentary writers as, a, uh, as I felt would be useful, including those that may be much more um, progressive than what the commentary series itself uh, does. And of course, what I affirm as well. Um, but just because I thought it was important to have uh, women's voices as part of the conversation. So I, I and, and, and I'm used to talking with them. And so even some of these women that might seem really progressive, you know, we chat in the ladies room uh, in between sessions at SBL, and they're my friends, even if we don't share always theological views, I, they're people to me. And so I think that that relational piece probably comes through, um, at least in my uh, in my commentary as I, when I'm reading uh, other commentaries and, and other books in my study for writing it, I feel that they are my conversation partners. And so I think that would be one, one thing that I would bring just kind of naturally as, as a woman author. But I think there might be other places, I hope there are other places where someone just reading along thinks, oh, this author is a good New Testament scholar. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> well, I've found uh, over the years that the people, it really matters who you decide to interact with. And mm -hmm. there's a sense in which you're writing a commentary, you're supposed to interact with everything. Well, it doesn't take very long to realize that's impossible. There is so <laughs> much stuff written that you'll never see and don't have time to interact with. And even if you did, you're not going to say anything about it. And so um, your choice of conversation partners is really matter. Uh, I mean, really matters. So, all right, now you, you bring up uh, women's scholarship. Uh, Lynn, you're probably known as one of the leading, if not the leading, New Testament scholar on women in the New, in the New Testament period. And uh, I know there's a new book by, is it Susan Hyland? Hyland? And uh, not as it's not as good as yours, but it's it's a little book. I don't know about that. It's it's a little it's a littler <laughs> book, um, and I know Nijay's worked on. I've taught some of these topics. Um, I'd like you to describe a little bit about what that work is, because that this isn't one of these uh, devotional studies. It's a it's a world opening experience. It's sort of like you have gone to about uh, fifteen uh, diaspora communities and thrown open the door and said, this, this is what's going on inside the house. So uh, give us some highlights of that book. And then I'm going to ask you to tell us who your favorite uh, woman in the New Testament is. Okay. <laughs> well, I, uh, I have to give credit uh, on this journey to my second reader, Ross Kramer, who uh, was at Penn for a long time. She did her dissertation on women in the Greco-Roman world um, at Princeton with John Gager. And Ross then uh, went up to Brown. Uh, well, she's um, uh, retired from there. Um, but Ross's work, I, I, she is just so careful. She asks fearless questions of the text. And we don't share 
the same presuppositions. But her book called Her Share of the Blessing was one I tried to use in my classes uh, because it, it opened up, I felt, the world of um, the first century in terms of women. But what happened was uh, the students, uh, they, they rightly picked up her different uh, presuppositions, but they tripped over those. And so I, uh, I thought, what if I took her example of diving into the historical material, but I framed it in a key that was more consistent with my own um, presuppositions? Would that, would that open up uh, her great work and others? There are other women, um, Bernadette Bruton, for example, um, I remember her writing her book. She she looked at inscriptions and was the uh, first woman to really challenge this idea that when you see a woman leader of the synagogue title, that that wasn't honorary. It, it may have actually been for real, you know. And I, I remember meeting her in my grad school days, and you know, it was it was fun. I was in the at the beginning of this movement of women exploring women in the ancient world. So. Um, so that that is kind of how my interest um, developed and was encouraged. And I love how you describe that I open doors for people to see a community of both men and women and how women were functioning. I, uh, that's that's a great image. And that that was truly what I was hoping to do uh, with this. Okay, so um, some highlights of the book. What are some things that you say Anybody, uh, a lot of people who read this book say, wow, I had no idea about this. I, I can tell you, a number of our students have read your book. They really like it. So what are the things that you hear that people say, this really illuminated uh, the text for me? I think overall, uh, people are just amazed at what women were doing. Women were just doing a lot, right? And I think that people just, they, you know, that there's this horrible phrase, barefoot and pregnant. But I think people really felt like, yeah, that's what women were. They just kept having kids and they were stuck at home. And, and you know, even from an economic standpoint, no one except the very wealthy had the luxury to not work. <laughs> so you were always doing stuff. Um, but I would say overall, that was the thing I think that hit people. Um, and... And then I would say, secondly, and relatedly, the influence that women had uh, on their wider culture. So a lot of women had um, had money. You know, Mary Magdala was a, a sponsor or patron of of uh, Jesus. She had she had the ability to spend her money the way she wanted to, and that um, uh, that's new for people. I think they impose a more Victorian model on the ancient world and think that. Women, once they married, they, they gave all their money to their husbands, and that, that just wasn't, uh, wasn't the case. Uh, also, that women could uh, give money to others. They could be patrons and benefactors themselves. And so that, I think just that sense of agency um, also is something that, that uh, readers will comment with me on. And then I think uh, in, in the book, uh, Women in the World of the Earliest Christians, Initially, I had said, I'll do one chapter on marriage. And as I delved into the uh, resources and the, the material, 
I realized I, I actually need two chapters. I need one chapter that describes the ideal marriage, and I need another chapter that looks at the resources we have on actual marriages, because they don't always line up. And I think mm. there are other, yeah, women will say, in one way or another, the fact that I parse out what is rhetorical and idealized from what was actually happening uh, is a real help at, at a variety of levels, including understanding marriage, because that's an institution that we have as well today. So. Okay, some quick questions. Was Julia an apostle? Yeah, I think there there is a very good chance that uh, that she was, and you know she's not one of the twelve, nor is Paul one of the twelve. Um, but I think she she carried authority in in the congregation and high authority in the in the congregation. Yeah, Priscilla. What yeah. about Priscilla? Well, I think she was really smart. <laughs> And I think Paul realized she was really smart and he was happy to have her train one of his other co-workers, um, Apollos, uh, because she was, she was that. It, um, and, and you know what, that, that was okay. Paul would have seen this kind of stuff uh, in, in other places. She had, in some way, she had education and that doesn't come cheap at this time. So when you have those things and when, when you have some sort of resource, it, there's an expectation that you use that for the benefit of the community. And so she can function as a mother of the city or a mother of the community and give of her resources and her talents in a way that doesn't make her uh, either a, an, an odd, you know, an odd bird or a, um, a renegade or uh, a an anomaly. It's just this is how the community functioned, and uh, I think that's that might be another to go back to your earlier question. That might be something that I learned in writing this book is that women were understood not only through the lens of gender, but also class and economic status, social status, and all of those things played a role and they do today as well. So um, it's, you know, that that's kind of a similarity, but when we tend to just sort of think male, female, and just the gender question, I think we miss out on the complexity of, the, of what was going on in the ancient city. One of my favorite New Testament women is Phoebe. And, uh, you know, I've written a little bit, of, I've, I've imagined my way into her life a little bit, but that's all right. I tell people I'm imagined. I, I think she was the reader of the letter. And if she wasn't, she probably told somebody how to read the letter. So she exercised, this is amazing to me. I first learned this from uh, Rita Finger. Do you know Rita? Yeah. I have, I do know her, yes. Yeah. No, of uh, her. I mean, I, I don't have a, you know, friendship with her, but I know okay. of her, yes. I first learned it from her and I, I was a young New Testament professor and I'm reading this thinking, whoa, this is, this is an interesting idea. And then, of course, Bob Gun by Bob Julik makes a, a bit of a, a deal of this. But um, Phoebe, um, you know, what was her position? And, you know, I, you know, my, one of my questions, do you think she was a deacon? Yes. And I think the, the big thing is, you know, that when the, when 
any of these titles are used in the New Testament. We cannot just overlap them onto current contemporary um, church polity. Uh, it, it just doesn't, you know, doesn't work easily that way, I don't think. But what I, and so I hate uh, for people to get tied up in knots about how, how to transpose it uh, today. What I would much rather say is that these women who are identified as leaders, uh, and I, I'm going to add uh, Yodi and Syntyche yeah. in, in uh, Philippians, they had enough influence in the Christian community that what they said mattered. And what they said mm-hmm. mattered to Paul's other co-workers, to Paul himself, and to everybody else in the community. And so however you then arrange your church today, it, I think being biblical would be allowing that same sort of thing to happen, out, whatever labels you're going to put on it. I guess that's how I try and navigate. Sure. But, but Phoebe also is a, a person of wealth. Mm-hmm. And... Uh... You know, probably was like a patron of the of the Pauline mission when he's in, I would guess, in Corinth as well as Cancrea, probably together. Don't you think? I do. I do. Yeah. Yes, and it's expensive to even write letters. I mean, Paul's ministry uh, was was an expensive enterprise, and travel was not easy to do, and so he relied on people helping him, as as did a lot of people uh, at this time. Um, not just, I mean, Paul's a public speaker. There are other public speakers, pagan speakers, Jewish speakers at the time. They all rely on people helping them out. Yeah. So. Well, our uh, listeners are going to be excited about uh, reading some of your work, your new commentary on Ephesians. And uh, boy, it got a lot of interest on my blog when I mentioned or, or whatever it was on Twitter or something. Boy, I'm really excited <laughs> about that. And on your, your studies on women, we didn't get to the other one you wrote is with Amy Hughes, uh, but, um, you know, we'll just tell students to come to Northern and they can, uh, people can come to Northern and study with you. But we're really excited about you coming and um, so excited that you spent time with us today. We look forward to your arrival. And I know our students are just so excited to meet you and to get to know you. So thank you, Lynn, for being with us. and. One of your students will be Laura Terrell, and I will do yeah. all I can to keep her as my TA so that she doesn't <laughs> abscond and take off and become yours. But uh, uh, well, we can talk. We can talk about this offline, right, Laura? We'll talk about it offline. There you go. There you yeah. go. Talk yeah. more. So, I I just have to say I am super excited, and I do know there was quite a buzz when the announcement was made that you were coming to Northern, and I think we are really looking forward to learning more about uh, the role that women played in the early church, in the earliest Christian church, and to think about what that means for us now, and how to um, move forward. I think Carrie was saying last night in a webinar. Um, what are the redemptive possibilities for women and men in the context of leadership in the church? And I think that's such a fun thing uh, to think about and to think about how to be an example to the world of God's purposes um, for men and women relating to one another in the context of the family of the church. So I'm excited um, to have you come and to help us learn more about how to put that into practice. 
So, well, thank you all for joining us for some time together on Kingdom Roots, where we look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. And we will be back in a few weeks with more to share with you all. Thank you. Thank you.